we were able to scale this to 32 nodes and instead of it taking five hours, it took seven minutes. Welcome to How AI Happens, a podcast where experts explain their work at the cutting edge of artificial intelligence. You'll hear from AI researchers, data scientists, and machine learning engineers as they get technical about the most exciting developments in their field and the challenges they're facing along the way. I'm your host, Rob Stevenson, and we're about to learn how AI happens. On this inaugural episode of How AI Happens, we're going to be looking at a perennial tug of war in our industry, speed versus accuracy. If your AI comes anything close to the consumer, speed is paramount. But if in speeding things up, you can't maintain accuracy, then isn't it just better to be patient? To learn more, I sat down with Adnan Khalil. Adnan interfaces with hundreds of organizations on behalf of Dell, all of whom are attempting to either scale or optimize their AI approach. I am a senior director for global sales strategy for high-performance computing, AI, and hybrid cloud. And uh, as part of that role, I get to work with a lot of different customers in, in many different areas. Most of them are either just embarking on their journey on artificial intelligence, or they're trying to better understand how to scale those systems out. Uh, for some, it's as simple as, you know, design a better computer system that allows them to be more efficient. But for others, it's how do you scale up? It's not just running it efficiently, but how do you run it efficiently at a very, very large scale? Because Adnan is focused on high-performance computing at Dell, I wanted to know about the kind of hardware and cloud computing his customers are implementing for their various use cases. This is where things uh, get difficult, and this is where we come in. Certain customers have gone down the path of doing just general purpose. You could use a general purpose Xeon to do your, your AI training workloads, and it works perfectly fine. And the good thing about a general purpose CPU or, or you know, a Xeon or AMD processor is that you can use it for everything else. Now, a GPU is also, you know, they've been optimized to the point where, you know, people are doing a lot of training on them and they work really well. Now, GPUs are still not sort of, you know, general purpose enough. Now, not all codes run efficiently on a GPU. But yeah, and then, you know, people who are like hyper-specialized, when you talk to the Googles of the world, you know, they've got their own processors that they've they've designed from scratch, which are customized to, to do the training workload and are optimized for their particular type of training workloads um, as well. And these are called, you know, tensor processing units. And, you know, each one of them has, you know, some advantages over the other. But uh, ultimately, if you don't want to invest in any hardware, the simplest way to go is you just, you know, go with a general purpose CPU and most of them will do the training. It just may not be fast enough for what you need, especially if it's associated with some sort of a business process. Fast is a very relative term. Now, let's say you're a business and your entire e-commerce site is based on recognizing objects. In this case, let's call it merchandise. Now, anytime you have some new objects or some new merchandise that's being introduced and you're, you're, you know, you're trying to recognize them, well, you've got to like run your algorithm through all of the new sort of merchandise. 
And in that case, if your site is up 24 seven and you don't want to have like any disruption, well, you want to do that training and the implementation of that model very, very quickly because you're not affecting your sales cycles. Now, in other instances, if you're a researcher, and you're trying to understand you know, anomalous cell behavior, identify anomalous cells. Now, if the training were to take longer, it's inconvenient, but it's not detrimental and you're not losing money. But yeah, so you know, researchers generally, they also don't have unlimited funds as a business would. So they're okay with waiting a while, you know, to get their results rather than like going and investing in a whole bunch of different hardware. Now, this also, you know, sort of varies, like you can think of life uh, healthcare and life sciences is a perfect example as well, where if you're a researcher, again, you're fine waiting the extra hour or day to get your training models done. Whereas if you're on you know, the clinical side and you're working with a patient, you know, you want things to be as as quick as possible, because if it's during a doctor consultation and you, know, you find something new in an x-ray or an MRI, you don't want to keep the patient in suspense while you're trying to figure out, while the model's trying to figure out what it is. So yeah, so it, it really depends on, you know, what the, the specific needs are. Here, it struck me that your choice of hardware would move in parallel with how much you want to scale up your AI implementation. Adnan walked me through his experience, seeing many customers scale, and shared some key considerations they make along the way. And 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 really it's a journey, right? You know, so so let me sort of use an analogy. When you're first learning to drive, uh, as much as I would like to have just jumped into a Ferrari and slammed on the pedals, uh, you generally don't do that. <laughs> so, you know, you, you learn to drive on um, not a sports car, you know, in like a, a Ford, a lesser, a lesser of a sports car. And then, you know, you learn to drive. And similarly with AI adoption, it's the same thing. You know, you you initially try to understand what the algorithm is capable of because not, you know, even though you know the data scientists and the researchers understand what it can do, typically the businesses still have to like go through a proof of concept. So you generally have a smaller setup. You're trying to like understand is this the right technology for you? Do you need to tweak it and so on? So once you've gone past the you know the proof of concept, then you start building a bigger system. And then you know, and once you start realizing the value of a bigger system, typically then end users, you know, either it's more training data that's being associated with the whole training EPO and that sort of, you know, you need the whole storage infrastructure and the interconnect and the networking to make sure all of the data is being fed properly and uh, at a sustained balanced rate. And then, you know, and then people run into the problem of, okay, well, I want to do this in lots of different parts of my business. And then you run into this whole scaling problem is because everybody wants to do it. And, and generally, that's a good success story. Unfortunately, it doesn't always work that way because sometimes people, you know, bite off more than they can chew. And as a result of that, you know, they end up failing. So and that's why we sort of recommend this, you know, learn to like, you know, crawl, walk and then run. So and with the AI, with the AI world and the big data world before that, it's a very so, sort of a similar approach. With containerization, you can take your sort of workflow that you've developed on your laptop and easily transfer it onto the cloud. And it really doesn't take a lot of you know, modification. It's, it's really meant to run out of the box. And for the most part, it'll scale decently. The other sort of challenges come in where people like run on the cloud 
And then they see, you know, wow, this is really expensive. And that's where a lot of the HPC technologies also come in as well, because even the data scientists, even though they understand, you know, how all of these things work, they're not hardware experts, they're not, you know, infrastructure experts. And then on top of that, when you build these lot systems, you also have to factor in the power, the, the configuration, the cooling as well based on how much data center space you have or if you're using a colo and so on. So there are all of these different considerations that come into play uh, once you look at this, the scaling picture. Do most of your customers wind up using some kind of containerization process? Some of them do. Um, you know, it's, it's funny you ask that because if you look at the typical HPC customer, most of them are like, you know, the NASCAR drivers. And if you get into a NASCAR, you know, you can see it's been stripped bare right down. And, you know, there's there's not even a gas uh, level meter. So you're sort of estimating stuff. And, and that's how most HPC people are, is like, they don't want all of the extraneous, you know, nice to have, you know, bells and whistles. They just need the code to run as fast as it can. And they want to have as few distractions as possible. But on the other hand, containers, you know, bring with them a lot of conveniences. You know, there's cord portability, there's easier sharing. Um, there's reproducibility. So, you know, we've, we've got this happy mix. Some instances, people are fine using containers and there are some very good HPC specific containers like Singularity and, you know, and, uh, and also Kubernetes as well. But in some instances, our, our customers want to be on the direct, the big iron as close to it as possible. So they don't even want any virtualization. What is the uh, bias against virtualization? That's, you know, there is a performance penalty because, you know, anytime, you know, you do a system call, it uh, it has to go through another layer of software. Although, you know, that argument is quickly losing steam because if you look at the latest versions of the commercial virtualization software out there, you know, they've, they've reduced that drastically. You know, in the past when, you know, say 10 years ago, you could have seen the overhead of any sort of networking traffic that was using virtualization. There was a, quite a high penalty, like anywhere from like five to 10%, but typically now it's like one to 2% for uh, you know, some applications, some it's it's even less than that. It's just that, you know, sort of people have stuck on with this mindset that virtualization uh, sort of exacts a severe penalty. And, you know, in some cases it does even today. But for most instances, I think the convenience outweighs some of the penalties that uh, virtualization might introduce. Now, you know, if you go back like, you know, 40, 50 years, people were writing assembly code. And that was really hard to write, you know, uh, it wasn't very intuitive. But then people started, you know, preferring high level languages like C and C++ and Java. Now, if you look at it compared to writing assembly, you know, C and C++ are, are close to assembly, but they're not quite assembly, but they offer a lot of convenience. Now, similarly, when it comes to computing, you can run stuff directly on the bare metal, which is fine, but if you, do it in a container, you get all of these other benefits, which you wouldn't if you're running it directly on, on the bare metal. So it's really ultimately at the end of the day, you know, I think convenience sort of trumps, but you, it takes a while. Uh, it, it isn't immediately obvious, but it's also, you know, about the maturity of the software tools along the way. This question of when to use bare metal or containerization and what amount of performance penalty was acceptable led us directly to a key case study that focuses on increasing speed while maintaining accuracy, a study Dell performed on an algorithm, an algorithm called ChexNet. 
essentially ChexNet is an algorithm that was you know, developed at Stanford uh, with the goal of identifying mutated cells on uh, and on an X-ray. You know, it was essentially developed to like understand X-rays better, to identify cancers, tumors, any anomalous cells uh, on X-rays faster, better than a radiologist, or more accurately than a radiologist. So uh, this was an algorithm was developed like a few years ago, and it's it's they actually tested on fourteen different anomalous types of uh, cells. You know, ranging from emphysema to cardiomegaly to fibrosis to to edemas and so on and so forth the great thing about this algorithm is it today has a, an accuracy of 84 percent which you know maybe it's slightly higher than your average radiologist at identifying some of these uh, anomalous cells but again it's you know it's easier to make this algorithm available um, globally than it is to train a whole bunch of radiologists so really that was the goal so, but, you know, this goes back to our earlier conversation about the need for speed. Um, the great thing is the algorithm works. It works really well, as I mentioned, really good accuracy, but it takes a really long time to train it. And the way that they had developed the algorithm, it had to be trained on a single machine. In other words, you couldn't paralyze it in order to, to speed it up. So, so that was the work that we had done at Dell and to see, was there a, a framework that we could adopt in order to take this ChexNet algorithm and then sort of divvy it up into smaller pieces and spread it across lots of different nodes. In other words, could we scale this algorithm and try to speed it up and still maintain that accuracy? The algorithm itself was meant to run serially. You were sort of meant to go through all of the different images. And, you know, if you look at it, uh, the convolutional neural networks used in this algorithm are sort of, you know, serial state machines. You have to like train them on all of the different images one after the other in order to get the full benefit of that training. Now, the moment you sort of deviate from that training cycle and you sort of split it up, well, you've really degraded the accuracy. So our goal was, is there a way of still maintaining that accuracy, but speeding it up? And ultimately, it was that serial nature of the training of that algorithm that we were trying to sort of understand better and then sort of, sort of uh, you know, distribute it over a framework. Enter parallelization. Enter parallelization, which is essentially the domain of high-performance computing. Because if there's one thing that HPC users are really good at is taking a problem and then sort of spreading it over lots and lots of different compute units and, and trying to speed it up by the number of compute units. So in other words, if a job takes, you know, 100 hours on one processor, the goal is, can you take that one job, split it up over 100 processors, and could you run it in 100 the time it would have taken you on that one processor? That this is, you know, this is the sort of problem you run into in lots of different domains. Weather modeling is another one of them. You know, there are certain classes of problems which lend themselves very easily to being decomposed, and then you know you can process them and and recompose them back. For example, like you know weather simulation and modeling. You know, you, you typically what you do is you you create these voxels, which are you know small like three D grids, and then you can do all of your simulations on those small three D grids. 
and then combine the edge results and then sort of you you sort of stitch together the the end sort of uh, view of your your entire simulation and your model and as a result of that you know you can sort of paralyze and and get speed ups now in certain instances you cannot or it's very hard in order to to do some of these these speed ups just because the nature of the, how these algorithms have been designed is that they they have to run very very serially now a serially you know the drawback is that it, it can only run on one process at a time so so the, you know in, in in hpc the the lots of different cases where you know you've got like loosely coupled work where you can it's really easy to distribute them or you've got very tightly coupled workloads where it's harder to sort of distribute them was that the parallelization approach that was taken with chexnet yeah, that was you know, it was very very similar to that. We we also wanted to use uh, a readily available framework that we could then sort of extend to Chexnet and rather than create something of our own. And you know there is an open source uh, tool called Horovod that we used in order to to introduce those synchronizations. And again, as you split something up, uh, one of these algorithms up, you need to be able to synchronize at certain points, and that's what Horovod allowed us to do. What we did manage to do is we had these incredible speed ups. Well, I have to give some some base numbers, yeah. But on a single system, on a single node, it would take around five hours to run this particular training job. Now, our goal was could we throw many more systems at it? And so we said, like, okay, from a single node, if we could go up to a 32 node, that would be great. And initially, when we tried to do this, um, obviously, you know, the accuracy suffered due to the, the the reasons I mentioned earlier. But then ultimately, when we did sort of come around to like tweaking the algorithm and making it work in this parallel environment, we had some uh, tremendous speed ups. And in other words, we were able to like to to scale this to 32 nodes. And uh, instead of it taking five hours, it took seven minutes. So you can imagine the sort of improvement that that could have in a real world environment. I mean, that seven minutes is the duration of, you know, within the duration of a doctor's uh, visit. So, you know, you could get your x-ray or your MRI taken. And as soon as that happens, the number crunching begins in the background. And when you're ready to see your radiologist or your doctor, right after that, the results are, are present. So it, this has real world implications. And the accuracy was maintained? And the accuracy was maintained. In some cases, it was actually improved, but for the most part, it was maintained. Now, there were some cells which, you know, the accuracy suffered, but I think that was like on two of the workloads, uh, two of the different types of anomalous cells, we couldn't improve on the accuracy and there was a slight degradation. But overall, as a cohort, you know, we saw a, a slight improvement in terms of a few percent in terms of accuracy. So, you know, that is something, you know, today we are willing to live with, but as, you know, science marches on, you know, I'm sure we'll tackle those problems as well and, you know, improve the accuracy, not just of those two that were slightly lagging, but of, of the overall system. Of course, the implications of speeding up ChexNet reach far beyond the examination room. I immediately thought of applying this approach to any sort of image processing, but as Adnan explained, I'll need to start thinking a little bigger. This was done on x-rays, so an x-ray is just a two-dimensional image, the way you can look at it. So any sort of an image, uh, this technique can be applied to. 
So if you're trying to identify, you know, uh, something that's anomalous in an image and it doesn't occur very, very frequently. So yeah, any sort of an image. Now there's ways of even sort of extending this to like, you know, other sort of domains other than just images like videos, uh, which are just like still frames, you know, clearly, uh, but also time domain uh, signals, for example, like voice, which is, you know, it's, it's a time domain sort of a signal. Uh, or any other kinds of, you know, radio frequency signals as well. Because, um, again, astronomers are also looking at lots of different types of data, obviously, like, you know, images from telescopes, but also trying to understand, you know, and, and classify uh, lots of different, you know, heavenly bodies out there. So, you know, an algorithm like this could, could clearly benefit uh, astrophysics. Image processing, video, time domain signatures, astrophysics, I'm sure the list goes on. I'll include a link to the full report on the ChexNet parallelization in the episode notes. And if this technique ends up working for you, well, I'd love for you to tell me all about it. Moving beyond containerization, speed versus accuracy, and parallelizing algorithms, I wanted to end with a little bit of brain candy. I'm always curious what's most exciting to the experts in the AI space, where they see the most impactful changes occurring, and what stokes their curiosity, even after a long day of making AI happen. Oh God, how much time do we have? I mean, there's so many things that are happening in, in high-performance computing and AI, especially on the AI side. Um, and I'm sure you've, you know, you've already heard about or read about, you know, deep fakes and how it's, it's really easy to manipulate videos and to make it look like, you know, it's somebody saying things that, that wasn't, wasn't actually said. So, you know, to me, what's interesting is this is going to sort of bring us into an area where as a human society, you know, it's, it's sort of unprecedented. So that's going to sort of, you know, we're going to have to have new laws, new legislations, you know, ethics as well. Like, you know, more and more we're, we're looking at algorithms that are going to be deciding on people's financial futures. We have to be able to understand, you know, why somebody was denied a mortgage versus why somebody was approved. And also the, the fact that, you know, the data itself, you know, if you, if you, use historical data for training, which is the best source of data that we have. And whether we realize it or not, there are some biases built into that stuff. So if you've trained a model historically uh, using historical data, you've, you've already got um, a biased model. So, you know, there's, we have to be able to not only explain the data, but explain the algorithm and ultimately find ways of detecting bias and making sure that there's fairness that's sort of built into the system and be able to detect when something is not fair. The other areas is there's neuromorphic computing, which is another branch of artificial intelligence, which uh, are looking at more at some of the spiking neural network models or the neural uh, which are more similar to how, you know, actual neurons work. And and what's really interesting about that uh, field is that uh, these, these computational models are, you know, several orders of magnitude more efficient as compared to like, you know, GPUs and so on. And you also don't need as much data. Uh, and you don't need to label them and so on. It's, it, they 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 learn similar to how similarly to how you and I learn. It's like you know, if you show me a few images of a cat, and then I tell you what a dog looks like, the next time you see a dog, 
you probably will be able to sort of infer and say like, hey, I think that's a dog. Today, it's it's really, you know, the, the algorithms are really good at saying, well, that's a cat, that's a cat, that's not a cat. But you know, it's it's just all of the the development that's going on in this in this field of uh, AI. It's it's just tremendous, and uh, I think we've just we're we're really at the beginning of the next stage of you know of of discovery, because there's implications in so many different fields in genetics and genetic dust and drug discovery in identifying anomalous you know patterns that are disease causing, and I think what really excites me is you know, is the fact that even though we've made some some great advances in, in medical science, you know, with pharmaceutical drug discovery, employing AI, we're just going to, to get into that next era where, you know, uh, you know, the time to find drugs for, you know, very intractable diseases is, is going to be, it's going to, be, you know, take a very different approach than what we've done in the past, rather than it being a lot of trial and error, where, you know, we, we go through all of these compounds in a laboratory, you know, a lot of that can be automated. In fact, you wouldn't even have to physically do it. You do it entirely virtually in simulations and AI would help you sort of even decide which ones were the most promising of these compounds. So there's there's no one single area that I can think of is not going to benefit from AI. And it's it's you know sort of it's it's really understanding, you know, which technique works best for you. And then ultimately it's going to be development in these algorithms as we understand how how some of these algorithms work. And believe it or not, you know, and this is the part which sort of catches most people off guard is, you know, a, a deep neural network is because of its complexity is very much like a black box. We still don't understand entirely how it works, uh, which is fascinating to me because, you know, much like the human brain, we understand aspects of it, but we still don't understand entirely everything about it. So uh, you know, when you talk to the researchers, they'll tell you oftentimes that, well, we need a, a neural network in order to understand a neural network. So, um, so yeah, I think, and that's where we are. And there's something called explainable neural networks and so on. That's a project that's been, you know, MIT has been working on. So it's, it's just, you know, um, it's just fascinating all the things that we're going to embark upon. And um, I'm just happy that I can work with a lot of these users and customers and some of the smart people that are, that are working on some of these projects and I get to learn from them. So, so to me, that is the most exciting part. As I learned in the ChexNet example, and as I'm sure some of you said out loud to yourselves over the course of this episode, the concepts of speed and accuracy aren't necessarily an either-or. And as AI moves forward, I think we'll all expect to have both. Next time on How AI Happens. We ask the user to determine what kind of outcome they want. Then we throw half a dozen or more algorithms at that problem and then build maybe 100 or 200 models in the space of a few hours. How AI Happens is brought to you by Sama. Sama provides accurate data for ambitious AI, specializing in image, video, and sensor data annotation and validation for machine learning algorithms in industries such as transportation, retail, e-commerce, media, medtech, robotics, and agriculture. For more information, head to Sama.com.